chapter 1 and verse 3. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. Please hear now the Word of God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, as I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let us pray together, church. Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to set aside some time and to call out to you to work mightily on behalf of your people who do your work as they proclaim your name. And now we ask you to help us as we study your word this morning. We pray that you would speak to us through your spirit and you would guide this church and lead us that we too may be involved in your kingdom building work to our neighbors and the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I hope to talk to Houghton Richards, and I was going to show you where Houghton lives, if you don't mind. I, I have a, a picture. I thought you might find this interesting. It would be more interesting if we could talk to him. But you, you see up in the upper right-hand corner a picture of uh, the earth, and there's a little white box over an area of black, which uh, is the uh, Pacific Ocean. There's a country called Vanuatu out there. It's made up of 80 uh, islands. And I have there circled kind of in the middle of the island chain, the, the island of Ambram. And that's where Houghton and Gretchen and their three children are living and have lived for the past year and shall for the coming decades. I also have circled down there another island at the bottom. This is the island of Tana. I happened to be on the island of Tana last June. And uh, we were there because uh, Drake's Branch Baptist Church supported a Bible translation work amongst the southwest Tannese people. These are people about 2,500 who have their own language, and they just received the New Testament. And for the first time for centuries, these people have existed, and last year they received the Word of God, and I was able to go out there for the dedication of that, and also to take a, a number of days backpacking through the jungle, distributing the newly translated Bible and audio versions of that. In fact, I have a couple slides, if you don't mind, of uh, showing you what, the, what uh, this island looks like. If you, there's the island of Tana, uh, and there's Mount Yasser, the most active, accessible volcano in the world. It erupts about every 20 seconds. Um, there's another picture of uh, this island. It's just gorgeous, the middle of paradise, and there are thousands of people living on an island like this. Um, you can see the village that I was in uh, called Yenamalan on the next slide. And that's uh, just kind of how they live. The next slide shows you a close-up of their house. And they'll live in a uh, straw hut that's about 10 feet by 20 feet. And there'll be not a piece of furniture in there. They don't have beds or couches or a table or anything like that. There's just dirt there in the floor. And uh, that's where they live. That will get blown down about every four years from a hurricane. And they'll just rebuild. And this is how they live. And I mentioned that I was there to be able to dedicate the New Testament. In fact, the next slide shows you one of the highlights of my life. They, because I was a pastor, they invited me forward and uh, we all held up the Bible on high. 
And we were, the Bible was prayed for and we all gave thanks for the scripture that God in his great power and sovereignty had brought the scripture to these people, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then if that was not an honor enough, if you see the next slide, I was asked to preach the first sermon that the Southwest Tana people have ever heard um, as they held on to their Bible in their written language. In fact, you can see from the next slide, um, I found great joy of them studying the Word as I preached. And the next slide shows you the great happiness that they had in receiving the Scripture. But that's the, the, the reason I went there was not simply to preach or to dedicate the New Testament But it was ultimately to go backpacking into the jungle with a number of translators carrying as many Bibles and audio versions of the Bibles that I could. And we were just going to go out in the bush and we were going to find villages up in the mountains. And before we went, the chief of Yetamalan, a brother in Christ named Chenri, came to me the night before we went. And he quoted from memory this scripture from Isaiah 52, if you'll see on the next slide. Well, um, let me step back. Yeah, go to that next slide. There you go. One more, please. You see, there's a reason why they need the scripture. It is a pagan land. And uh, this is a taboo place, a place we hiked by. This is a place where their spirits go and uh, live. You're not allowed to look behind you as you hike through this place. You're not allowed to say anybody's name as you walk through this place. And there's this animism and this paganism that still pervades amongst many of the people. In fact, the Tannese people were some of the last people in the world to give up cannibalism. They gave up cannibalism and headhunting around the 1950s. And so they're in desperate need of the gospel. The first missionaries that went there in the 1850s were immediately killed and consumed by these people who I was hiking to. Well, I mentioned that Chenry came and quoted me the scripture verse from Isaiah 52. Next slide. Well, maybe he didn't. Um, so, well, it, here I am. Uh, um, um, giving. What we would do is we would hike to these villages. We would gather at the Nakamal. This is a Nakamal. It's a gathering place for their men. And the white man would show up. And many of these people had never seen a white man before uh, in their life. In fact, while we were hiking uh, on one trip, um, we, I heard rustling in the bushes. And uh, uh, my translator, Tom Pico, started yelling very violently. And then after he finished yelling, he started laughing. And in fact, everybody, uh, we're a group of nine of us. I was the one white guys and eight um, guys carrying Bibles. They all started laughing. And I said, Tom Pico, w- what are you yelling about? And he says, well, they've never seen a white man before. I said, okay, well, what did you say? I said, go get the gun. The devil is here, Right. <laughs> I didn't find it as funny as they did. Um, They were astonished to see someone of my skin color. And so I would gather in these villages. Sometimes about 10 people would come. Sometimes about 80 would gather once they heard a white man was there. And I would preach to them about a God who made everything that they see and that we've rebelled against him. And yet he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has died upon the cross for them in order that they may be, have peace with this God if they place their faith in him. And I told him, I've come from America to give them the word of Jesus Christ. And that I would present the Bible to the chief and the audio version of the, vo- uh, of, of the Bible. In fact, this, I'm pretty sure this next slide shows you the chief from Yenfulia. Let's see. 
This man is uh, the village chief of a very large village up in the mountains. He told me, to my surprise, after I presented the gospel, he said, you know, we worship Jesus. I said, you worship Jesus? He said, yes. A man came through and he told us about Jesus and that we are to worship him and him alone. And I asked this chief, I said, well, when did this man come through? Was it last year? Was it five years ago? And once that translation got through, he began to shake his head violently, no. And he communicated that this man came through over a hundred years ago. And so a man, can you imagine, came through a hundred years ago and told this village about Jesus Christ. And now for over a hundred years, they've been trying to follow Jesus and worship Jesus without even a page of God's word. And so when I was able to present him his word, uh, the village quickly gathered around. If you see the next slide, um, there's great joy. There's Tom Pico. He's giving a gospel presentation. You see holding in his hand these solar paneled um, Bibles that they can charge and play audibly. And once he began to share this, as you see the next slide, uh, there was just great joy and delight that they finally had the word of God. Well, I mentioned, I think this is where we get to this passage, that Chenry told me this verse before we went on our walkabout. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the gospel, who publishes peace. And Chenry said to me, he said, Pastor, tomorrow we shall climb the mountains. And we shall bring the gospel of peace to people who have never heard the name of Jesus. And God will see our feet are beautiful. The, the ironic thing is that their feet are not beautiful. I mean, they walk around barefoot, and their feet are full of sores, festering off and infected. And yet God looks down, and those are beautiful feet torn up for the gospel. Chenry got me to read Isaiah as we were getting ready to leave, and I, I read three verses later in Isaiah 52, verse 10, as you see. The Bible says the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And here I was, 2,700 years after Isaiah penned these words, very literally at the end of the earth, amongst God's people. For he has bared his arm, and he has brought salvation to the ends of the earth, as he has said. In fact, I read in Isaiah 61 and verse 11, if you'll note this verse on the next slide. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You see, he promises to cause his praise to come from every tongue and every language and every tribe. And it was a great joy, a highlight of my life, that I was able to hear the praise of God amongst the Southwest Tana language. In fact, I hope I have a video or two that I'd like you to listen. This first video is I, I filmed secretly. I tried to at least. It is a Tuesday night when the children gather together every night in their run-down church building to praise God. Every night they'll gather together to sing praise to Him in the village I was in.
The next day we had the dedication and the women composed this song in praise to the Lord. He has promised to cause his praise to sprout up before all nations. And he is fulfilling that work in our day. Amongst people all over this world, he is causing his praise to sprout up. How? How is he doing it? Well, the Bible, as you see in this next slide, says in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will will be saved. In order to be rightly related to the Lord, we need to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. We understand that that we cannot earn our place in heaven, no matter if we live in America or on the island of Tana or in Ambram, by being a good person, but only by belief in Jesus Christ. For he has lived a perfect life for wayward sinners and died upon a cross to bear the punishment that was due to us. And three days later rose from the dead. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, hear that and that alone. That you can be rightly related to God. You can receive the purpose for which you are created. Receive eternal life if you will bow your knee to Jesus. And many of these people on Tana are bowing their knee to Jesus. They're calling upon the Lord. But Paul, 2,000 years ago, wants to know how are they going to call upon him? You see that repeated question, how, 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 how? Well, as you see in the next slide, he tells us that in order to call upon him, they must believe. But in order to believe, they must hear. But in order to hear, someone must tell them. But the problem is, is that thousands of these people groups live in this world with no one to tell them. There is no one they know that knows the name of Jesus. And so Paul tells us, they must be sent. And that's the verse that I want to drill down on. Verse 15 in this next slide. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? What does it mean to send a missionary? What does it mean to send people to the ends of the world? Well, I used to think what it meant, at least how we do it, is we just gather money together and pay for them to go. And as a Southern Baptist, what we do is we kind of gather all our money and put it in a pot, and it pays to send out 5,000 missionaries. Most of them we don't know. Many churches don't know a single one and don't know where they're going. And I thought this is how missions were supposed to take place. You just gather your money together and send them out, faceless missionaries to nameless lands. And then I read the book of Philippians. I wasn't looking for a a mission partnership paradigm, but this is what I found. In fact, Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why, Paul? Why are you praying for them? 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says to the Philippian church, you've partnered with me for the gospel. In fact, that word is often translated fellowship. You fellowshiped with me in the gospel. And when I think of fellowship, I think of a not a one-way relationship. I think of a reciprocal relationship that's going both ways. It'd be very hard for me to say, listen, I'm going to fellowship with you, but you don't fellowship with me. Right? It goes both ways. And as we see what Paul begins to unfold here in the relationship that he had, this missionary who's traveling about the world and these Christians in Philippi who are supporting him, he begins to lay out for us what this relationship looks like. What does it look like to send a missionary, at least in Paul's mind? And so this morning, I I want to quickly work our way through the book of Philippians. I hope you have it. I hope you're open there. We're going to jump around a little bit. And we're going to try to identify what this relationship looks like between this missionary Paul and this supporting church in Philippi. I've identified five realities in this partnership. The first is you see that they share intercessory prayer. Notice in verse 19 of chapter 1. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. We know Paul's in prison, and he's aware that the Philippian church is praying for him. In fact, they are praying for him in such an extent that Paul is basing his deliverance from prison upon their prayers. And so I imagine that they're not praying weak or superficial or tepid prayers, but this is a strong commitment to pray for this missionary that this church has as they hear that their their missionary partner is in prison. And they pray for him to be released. You know why Paul wanted to get out of prison? Was it because he didn't like prison? Well, I don't know. Look in verse 12 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, Paul's chained to a Roman guard eight hours a day. And then a new one comes and chains himself to Paul. If you're chained to the apostle Paul for eight hours a day, guess what you're going to hear about for eight hours? The gospel. Paul's having a good time in prison. He doesn't need to be released. but Maybe he's afraid he's going to die. Well, look in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed... But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. My desire is to die and to be with Christ, he says. I'm not afraid to die. So why does Paul want them to pray for his deliverance? We'll read on, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in faith and joy. He wants to get out of prison for the gospel's sake. In fact, Paul is constantly requesting prayer from his supporting churches, and often the prayers just surround the, the gospel. In the Ephesians, he says, pray for me for the ability to speak the gospel. In Romans 15, he says, pray for the freedom for me to speak the gospel. In Colossians 4, he says, pray for the opportunities for me to speak the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, pray for the positive reception of the gospel. In the Corinthian church, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, you must help me in prayer. He says, you must pray for me. If I'm to do the work that God has called me to do. 
You see, friends, that this world is headed in one direction, and it is the white-hot, passionate worship of King Jesus by every tongue. That's where we're going. That's where we'll end up. But for some reason, God has decided to use missionaries to go to places that have no gospel witness in order to gather his people together in order to proclaim that good work. But he has gone before, even farther than that, and he said the missionary work will only happen if people pray. Now, prayer is not the work of missions. The verbal proclamation of the gospel is. But prayer empowers the proclamation of the gospel. And it will not happen unless God's people pray. I tell you, prayer is not simply a tool by God given to you to, for you, to, to pursue your ease and your comfort. Though we may pray for these things, prayer is the tool which God has given us to expand his kingdom and his fame. This is why Paul says, as I've already read for you this morning in Romans, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, fight together with me in prayer on my behalf to God. Join me in this fight. Pray for me, he says. And we see this Philippian church praying for him. But what's amazing to me is that the prayer does not go one way. And we all understand we're supposed to pray for our missionaries. And I'm not telling you anything new, right? I'm not sure if we do, but we know we're supposed to. But what about the the missionary praying for his supporting church? Well, look back in verse 3 of chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. He's praying for them. Look in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He's praying for them. And it's just not the prayer flowing one way, but it's going both ways. And I'm surprised that we neglect this because it's all over Scripture. For the supporting church in Thessalonica, Paul prays for them that they may have love and patience. For Corinth, they may have righteousness. In Rome, he prays for their unity. In Colossae, he prays for their knowledge of God's will. In Ephesians, he prays that their eyes will be opened. For Philemon, he prays that his gospel witness will be affected. And for the Philippians, he prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He's praying for his supporting churches. In fact, Paul is traveling at one time with a man named Epaphras, a fellow missionary. And in Colossians 4 and verse 12, The Bible says that Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Isn't that amazing? Here's a man on the mission field who's spreading the gospel in a place that they don't know the name of Jesus Christ. And what is he busying himself to do? Praying for his supporting church. You see, the prayer begins to go both ways as the relationship develops and strengthens. And I think when this actually happens, that prayer will be promoted in us. I think if we knew that our missionaries were constantly beseeching the Lord on our behalf, that this would promote prayer for us, that we would begin to pray more fervently. If they were aware of our needs and our challenges and our vision, and they were lifting us up and we knew it and they knew we were praying for them, I think this would just create an atmosphere of prayer for us and for them. But in order to have this life of prayer with our missionaries, we need to know what's going on in their life and they need to know what's going on in ours. So secondly, we see from Philippians that there is a sharing of personal information. Now Paul in verse 12, as we've already seen, he, he lets them know that he's in prison. He wants his supporting church to know what's taking place on the mission field. I want you to know, right? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
And we don't have time, but you could read on and you could see that Paul is really informing the Philippian church as to how he's handling this. He wants them to be aware of what's taking place. And again, this is not unusual. Missionaries do this. They, they send us their updates. They want us to know what's going on. But does it go both ways? Well, look in verse 27 of chapter 1. The apostle, this missionary, writes about his supporting church. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and, come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's going to hear about them. He's going to learn about them. In fact, if you see in chapter 2, he knows that he even knows they're struggling with disunity issues. Verse 3 tells us, do nothing out from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He knows what they're struggling with. He knows that they're challenged in, in unity. In fact, look in chapter 4 and verse 2. He even knows the names of the people who are struggling as he says, I entreat Euodia and I treat Sintuki to agree in the Lord. He knows that these two women are, are causing division in the church. Paul's aware of what's taking place in this church in Philippi. He knows they're struggling. In fact, it's not just in this supporting church of Philippi, but it's throughout Paul's letters that we become aware that Paul knows what's going on in that church. You ever read the end of these letters? We kind of skip it, right? Barry says, hello. I hope Edna's feeling better, right? You know all those greetings. But what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that this missionary is well aware of who's in that church and what's going on in their life. And they're aware of who he's traveling with and what's going on in their life. There's this vibrant exchange of information. They know each other. And I wonder, friends, if we became more aware of what God is doing around this world, if we became more aware of the the global work of God, I wonder if our identity would begin to change. I wonder if we begin to think less about what we need and less about our issues. And I wonder if our head would be lifted off some of the mundane matters that often preoccupy us, and we would see a global God doing a global work. And we wouldn't be so concerned with some of the petty things that seem to disrupt us and, and bother us as we gaze upon a God who is mighty in His work of salvation. I wonder if this sharing of information, as we become more aware, we would begin to understand that God does not exist for us, but we exist for Him. We exist to be on his mission. Oh, I think there's great power here. Well, you see, thirdly, that there's a sharing of financial support. And this probably shouldn't surprise you. This we understand well in missions that we give money to our missionaries. Look in chapter 4 and verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, your Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Paul spent three weeks, according to Acts 6, in Philippi. He planted a church in three weeks, moved on to Thessalonica. After three weeks of being in existence, this church is already supporting the missionary. He says, you, you've already, you started at the very beginning. Even in Thessalonica, he says, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So they're supporting him. They're helping him. In fact, when he writes to the Corinthian church, he writes about this church in Philippi, saying, when I was 
with you and I was in need. I did not burden any of you for the brothers came from Macedonia. That's Philippi and possibly Thessalonica and supplied my need. And so the church is supporting this missionary financially, but it's more than financially. They're actually sending short-term missionaries to him. Look back in chapter 2. They're not only giving him money, they're sending him um, personnel. In chapter 2 and verse 25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more the eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that, complete what was lacking in your service to me. Many think that Epaphroditus was one of the elders in the church of Philippi, and you see that he went to Paul out in Rome to join him on mission. He went to serve alongside him to be his fellow soldier, his fellow worker. And you see this church supporting this mission work. But does it go both ways? Now, of course, the missionary is not going to send money to the church. But you do notice that Paul longs to be with them. Verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, one of Paul's missionary partners at this time, so that I may be cheered of news by you. So he's going to send Timothy to them. Verse 23, he says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. You see what this missionary wants to do? He wants to go and be with this church amongst these people because he's beginning to understand that this is my church. These are my people. They have this deep, robust relationship that we see flourishing here. And I think when this relationship takes place, it encourages sacrifice by the church. I think it's where we'll be so much more willing to give, in fact, to go without and to sacrifice if we actually know who it is we're giving to and they know us well. This relationship that we see the Philippians are sacrificing greatly for the Lord. Well, number four, you see that there is a sharing of sacrificial affection. Look back in chapter four. In chapter 4 and verse 10, we see the affection that this church has for this missionary. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. See, Paul says, you, you have great concern for me. They have affection for Paul. They have, their heart goes out after Paul. They long to be part of his work. Again, Paul writes about this church when he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians. And he wants to tell the Corinthians about this church in Philippi. He writes in chapter 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And you see this intimate affection that they had that grew out of this relationship, this longing for this missionary and to be part of what he does. But does it go both ways? Does the missionary long for this supporting church? Well, look back in chapter 1. There's a number of places that we can see this. 
But in chapter 1 and verse 6, we see his heart. As he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He holds them in his heart. It's right for me to have this love for you because I have you in my heart, he says. And I wonder if churches begin to develop these robust reciprocal relationships with missionaries. I wonder if it would inspire more missionaries. I wonder if it would inspire people who may be willing to go to places like Abram or Ethiopia or China, but they're afraid because they're going to go by themselves. I wonder if it was communicated to them by, by how we model, no, you will never go by yourself. Your church will be behind you 100%. And we will give and we will go and we will sacrifice and we will pray and we will support you. I wonder if people will be willing to say, okay, I'll go, knowing that I don't go alone. That this church has joined in me. That they identify this mission work as their work. That they take ownership over it. Well, you see, lastly, there is a sharing of triumphant joy. Book of Philippians has often been called the epistle of joy. There's joy everywhere. Paul's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to die or not, but he's joyful. He's happy. He's rejoicing in the Lord. I imagine part of the reason is because of his brothers and sisters in this church. You notice in chapter 4 and verse 1, as he describes his relationship with them, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I have so much joy for you. I love you. His joy is found in the fact that he's not alone, that he's being supported by his brothers and sisters in Christ. They too are to rejoice for the apostle says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I wonder if we had these type of relationships and we had this joy knowing what God is doing. I wonder if it would stimulate worship in us. I wonder, the more we're part of what God is doing around this world, the more that we sacrifice and give and go, that God may, may do his mighty work around this world. I, I wonder if our focus would become more upon God and less on us. I wonder if, if we would begin to worship a God more fervently as we see that God does not simply exist to follow us around and bless us, but God is doing a massive work amongst dark places and he is beating back the darkness and he is defeating the kingdom of Satan and he is planting his fame on every island amongst every people in this nation and I wonder if we would think okay that's the God I can worship that's the God I can worship he's not simply just following me around like a good dog and blessing me throughout the day but he's a global mighty God that is fulfilling his ancient promises right before my eyes and I wonder if we begin to get more involved in this and our eyes are lifted upon our Lord who reigns in heaven we say this is the God I want to praise this is the God I want to adore I wonder What would happen in Hamilton Baptist Church if a new work was started in some dark corner of this world because this church had a vision and this church sacrificed? I wonder what would happen amongst us 
If in North Ambrum 15 years ago, tribal people who recently gave up cannibalism hold up the word of God in great joy and delight because there are 200 Christians in Hamilton, Virginia that are, are going to work for the glory of God. I wonder what would happen for us if, if a, a people group gets reached because some from among us said, I'm going to go if you will go with me, if you will support me. I wonder what would happen amongst us in our worship and our adoration of our God. I don't think it would build us up. I think it would exalt God in our eyes. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 52 and verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. It often seems like the world's winning, doesn't it? It seems sometimes like the kingdom of God is getting beat back, at least what we see on the news. I mean, we live in a land that once largely held Jesus in esteem and honor, and now he's the object of our mocking and ridicule. We read of lands that kill Christians or imprison them if they convert from Hinduism or Islam. We know of islands around this world with tribes speaking their own language, steeped in paganism. Sometimes it looks like evil is having its way in this world. I think it probably looked that way on Good Friday. Jesus Christ was being pushed around and mocked and beaten and whipped and eventually paraded through the streets up to be nailed on a cross, and there he died. And they threw his body, his lifeless body, into a tomb and rolled a big stone over it, and it looked like the world had won. The devil finally got him. Just a couple days later, he kicks back the stone to show the world what he's doing. You know, in 1949, in China, the communist atheist overtook that nation. There were three million Christians. And it was like a massive stone was rolled over China. And 50 years later, Jesus kicked it off to show that while no one was looking, he saved 80 million Chinese. You see, the world keeps trying to push him down. They keep trying to silence him. They keep trying to limit him. And every time it looks like the world's winning, Jesus just kicks open the doors and shows what he is doing. It cannot stop him. For 20 centuries, it's been trying to stop him, trying to keep him in the ground. But I tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is alive and he is reigning and he will go wherever he wants to with his kingdom for all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. And he will build his church, as he said, and the nation shall see his salvation. Every tongue, every tribe, every language, every people. And they will, it will happen through missionaries. That's all, that's the way God has ordained it to have people that would go there and tell people about God himself. And these missionaries will only get there if there are groups of people who say, we will sacrifice to send you. My prayer is that Hamilton Baptist Church would increasingly get on God's mission. That we would be a people with a heart, not only for our neighbors, but for the nations, for the glory of God and his kingdom. Will you pray for me? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are mighty to save. And if all we do were to turn on the television, we would, it would look like you're being defeated on the left and the right. But it is not true. 
This world has fought against you for millennia. And yet your kingdom continues to march forward. Oh, not in the way that we would ordain it or write it up, but in a way that gives you power and honor. Oh, great joy is it to know that in North Amram or Southwest Tana, these little tiny islands of people once steeped in cannibalism and paganism are turning right and left to Jesus Christ. What joy is it to know that you've invited those who do not go to support those who are willing. Help us. Give us a vision as to what we can do for your kingdom, both here in Loudoun County and to the ends of this world. I pray for my friend here this morning who perhaps does not know you. Maybe your kingdom needs to grow this morning in this very room as you claim them for yourself. Will you not call them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son? Will you not give them faith to believe? They would see the folly of their life, the sadness that their sin brings upon them, the purposelessness, and that they would know that there's a God who loves them and who would receive them as a son and daughter forever if they will simply lay down their arms of rebellion and come to Jesus. Do this even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.